Welcome to episode 115. Thank you for joining us. This week, we welcome Adam Lazarus to the show. Adam is the author of the book, The Wingman, the story of the unlikely, unusual, unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams. Adam has also authored multiple books that focus on sports history, such as Hail to the Redskins, Best of Rivals, Super Bowl Monday, and Chasing Greatness. Adam talks to us about his decision to write this book, being that it takes a step away from the specifics of sports history and looks at the shared history of these two American icons. Within the public consciousness, this is a fairly unknown story of these two giants. It is one of friendship and the dynamics of a decades-long relationship, sometimes contentious, between the men that existed behind the mythology. Shameless plug, if you enjoy our conversation with Adam, take a look at the January issue of Leatherneck Magazine, where you can read an excerpt from Adam's book, The Wingman. It's a great opportunity to read about these two Marine Corps aviators and see some amazing photos of the two during their service in the Korean War. Also, in the January 2024 issue, is the article, A Day in the Life of a Marsoc Critical Skills Operator, where freelancer and veteran Marine Matt Coltwriter writes about the evolution of Marsoc and the qualities needed to become a member of this elite group of warfighters. And now, here's our conversation with Adam Lazarus. Enjoy! Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, thanks again for joining us. I am Vic. I'm here with Nancy. Hi, everyone. And we are super excited to be welcoming our guest, Adam Lazarus, to the show. Adam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So Adam is a uh, an author. Uh, he has published three previous books, um, Hail to the Redskins, Best of Rivals, and Super Bowl Monday. Uh, but we are here to talk to him about his book, The Wingman, the unlikely, unusual, unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams. Um, as a San Diego kid, super excited about anything and all things and everything that has to do with Ted Williams. Um, but also as a Marine, um, this is a, uh, a topic that really hits home for me. So I'm super excited to dive into this. Um, thank you for it's writing home. this book. It's it was home. really oh yeah, I've been on it all day today. I I keep saying like lead off, uh, <laughs> you know, let's do this, you know, let's wing it and all these things. Like it's it just it's in the blood now have, after having read your book. I'm glad um, I had that effect on you. Yeah, I know this is uh, you know, pretty soon I'm gonna start talking with my hands, you know, <laughs> talking about being inverted, uh, Maverick and Goose, you know, all that good stuff. But um before we do dive into this book, um, Adam, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, um, where you're from, uh, and then most importantly, like what was sort of the impetus behind uh, this book? I'm from uh, Northeast Ohio. Uh, I've, like you said, I've I've been fortunate to write a, a handful of mostly sports history books. Um, I uh, get to do, you know, tell stories about a lot of interesting people, and for this book, I've been uh, very excited and enthusiastic about learning more about the Marine Corps. I did not serve in just disclosure. I did not serve in the, in the military. I was did not serve in the Marine Corps or anything like that. So a lot of, um, the elements of this book were, you know, very foreign to me and new, and they were fun to explore. I was very fortunate to have many active and retired Marines helping me on the project. Um, but I, this all started 
when I saw a photo, it's actually a photo in the book. Uh, I was on Veterans Day a couple of years ago. Someone posted on, on a baseball website or Twitter or something, a photo of John Glenn and Ted Williams at their base in Korea during the Korean War, 1953. Um, and it just had a simple little tagline that said something like, did you know that during the Korean War, John Glenn and Ted Williams served together uh, for the Marine Corps? And I knew a lot about both men. I knew a lot about Ted Williams. I'm a big baseball history fan. I knew all his records. And I used to go to Cooperstown as a kid every year. So I knew all about his, his, not just his baseball records, but his service in the, in the military during both Korea and, and uh, World War II. Um, but I had never heard this, this connection with John Glenn. And the same thing, I'm from Ohio, like I said, uh, you don't grow up in Ohio without learning about John Glenn. So I knew a decent amount about John Glenn and I had never heard, I was surprised that I, given how much I knew about both men and having learned a lot about both men in different you know, avenues, baseball or the NASA element or, or politics, um, or just plain old American history that I never heard about this connection. And the first thing I did was I grabbed my book off my bookshelf. I had Ted Williams autobiography, my turn at bat. And I said, was this really true? Or is this photo just like, did they run across each other one day and someone snapped a photo of it? And sure enough, in Ted Williams autobiography, he talks about his serving with John Glenn and his friendship with him. And I, then I went on Amazon and ordered John Glenn's autobiography. Same thing, many pages on his friendship with Ted Williams. And the more I learned about it, I thought it was just a fascinating story and a, a really amazing intersection of American history. Well, Adam, let me welcome you also to the show, because today we're talking about two of my very favorite things in the world, aviation and baseball. And um, so welcome and thanks for being here. Well, thanks um, for having me. I have to say, like you, I knew a lot about Ted Williams. I knew a lot, not as much as you, but uh, knew a lot about John Glenn. And I knew they both flew in Korea. I had no idea until your book came across my desk that the two of them had been friends and remained friends later on. It was, it was kind of, I was shocked and excited to to learn that little tidbit of history. Um, how did you how did you find how did you uncover more because you've got so much detail in your book how did you do all your research besides the two books that you just mentioned yeah those the the traditional books the history books you know glenn's autobiography williams autobiography and then there's been biographies several great biographies on ted williams um a couple very very good biographies on john glenn um and those had some you know tidbits here and there uh, and then, you know, the profiles written about Ted Williams when he died, uh, profiles about some other interactions he had with John Glenn, um, you know, briefly mentioned the connection. Um, so those were good starting points. But I think um, what I, I found was most interesting was uh, I was able to get letters that John Glenn wrote home to his family during the Korean War. Um, they're in archives at the Ohio State University because his wife saved them and donated them. And, you know, that's shown a little bit of light on his, his friendship with Ted Williams, but also some of the missions he flew with Ted Williams. Similarly, um, there were um, letters from Ted Williams home to his mistress, actually, at the time. Uh, he didn't particularly mention John Glenn because he didn't really know that John Glenn would turn out to be an international superstar. Um, but those were a very good starting point for me, uh, finding letters a lot of families had written home. Uh, to to their families at home about the, their service in the war. So I tracked down some other pilots' children. Most of the pilots are gone who flew in the in the Korean War with Ted Williams and John Glenn. 
but several of the children still remain. And I talked to them and convinced them to send me a shoebox full of the letters that their mom had saved 50 years, 60 years earlier. Um, so those were good starting points. Um, but there were three pilots who are still alive, who flew with John Glenn and Ted Williams. They're in their late right. 90s. Um, they were all uh, very lucid and uh, energetic. And, you know, if you knew Ted Williams during the war and then later it turned out you knew John Glenn during the war, you re you remember that and you tell people about it. So they have the same stories that I'm sure they've told at cocktail parties and, uh, you know, events that they've run across or some person they ran into in the library many, many, many times. So uh, they didn't forget those details and they were fortunate to share a lot of them with me. Um, so those were the best sources for sort of the personal stories of how John Glenn and Ted Williams interacted. And it also provided a lot of uh, detail on what life was on the like on the base. And that, that was important for me was recreating that for the reader um, to share uh, what life was like on a Marine Corps base and in South Korea during the Korean War, um, flying missions every day, what kind of uh, missions they flew. I learned a lot about the planes they flew, um, the, the rations they had, you know, the O Club that they spent time at partying. Um, so those were some of the best resources for uh, uncovering uh, a little bit about their, their relationship in the early years. The later years were much more challenging um, because there is a long period in John Glenn and Ted Williams' friendship that they're not really in contact that much. Uh, but in their later years, particularly when John Glenn goes back to space at 77 years old in 1998, um, one of the first people he invited to, to attend the launch was Ted Williams. He personally drove out to his house in Florida to, to invite him. Um, and, it, you know, Ted Williams' uh, daughter told me about that. John Glenn's daughter told me about that. Um, so getting a lot of the details in their later friendship, particularly when John Glenn, when Ted Williams is really dying, when he's in his late 70s, early 80s and, and close to passing away, um, that was uh, harder to uncover facts and details about. But a lot of the people who, who were around there at the time were able to talk with me. That's that's really cool. And and sort of backtracking a little bit to talking about some of the pilots you spoke to, I was I was really excited when I saw that you had interviewed uh, Woody Woodbury. Yeah. From Woody the Woodbury. same air group because yeah. I, I wanna hear I wanna hear a little detail about that. He was um he was a good friend of my father in law. They both lived down in South Florida and they were mm -hmm. part of this this uh, aviation society called the quiet birdman and uh mm -hmm. my husband came home from attending his dad and he was like hey you gotta you gotta hear about this guy i met you might want to you might want to interview him for leatherneck magazine and he you know told me about this guy i went and looked woody up in our archives and lo and behold he'd been featured in the magazine in 19 i think it was the september 1953 yep. issue mm -hmm. um uh, about his time in Korea. So what was that like talking to talking to him and the other guys? He was he was a great source for me. Robert uh, Woodbury. I think he was Robert Woodbury Jr. And they called him Woody. I think he yep. was from Minnesota. Um, and he was a stand up comedian, uh, kind of a piano player, uh, very popular at nightclubs, I think, in uh, Vegas and uh, South Florida before World War, before Korea. Uh, so mm -hmm. after World War Two. Um, and he got sent to Korea, right? I think he, he said he was on stage at, at the, some fans, famous club in Miami at the time when the North Koreans invaded South Korea. Um, and uh, he got sent to the base uh, that Ted Williams and John Glenn were at. So he had a lot of stories. He shared with me 
uh, great details. I don't really remember how I got connected with it. I think he he was interviewed for, it may have been another Marine Corps publication um, about maybe 10 years ago. And I caught up with the author and she gave me his contact information. And I called him pretty frequently um, for, you know, interviews and verify facts. And do you remember this story? And uh, I remember, it's funny that you mentioned that September 1953, uh, Leatherneck Magazine uh, article, there's a picture of him playing the piano in it. Um, And he mailed me his copy of it. I told him, I said, I have, I have like a digital copy that I got off somewhere. Uh, And he he mailed it to me. (laughs) It was 70 years old almost. Uh, So I took very good care of it. Um, But he was very eager to talk about John Glenn and Ted Williams um, and uh, the life on the base. He told me a great story that's in the book. I don't want to give too much away about going on R&R with John Glenn to Japan uh, (laughs) and him, them deciding to buy a piano in Japan to bring back to the Oak Club because they didn't, he didn't like the piano they had in the Oak Club and uh, (laughs) you have to pick up the book to get all the details. But uh, John Glenn had a very, uh, uh, difficult odyssey back to, to base with the piano. Um, so, so Woody was, was fun and, and very colorful in some of his stories. Tell, told me a lot about this, the, the songs they played in the Oak club and what life was like on the, in the Oak club. Um, but just a great resource. And he was on a couple of the more memorable missions with Ted Williams, um, told an interesting story about Ted Williams crash landing and, uh, a Marine Corps, or actually I think it was an air force, um, uh, captain or Colonel, uh, t- asking Ted Williams for his autograph right after he crash landed his plane. Um, yeah, so, I remember reading that where he just like races out in his car yeah. onto the flight line. Everyone's thinking, oh, he wants to check and make sure the pilot's okay. Like, no, yeah. he's got handing him a piece of paper to sign it. <laughs> yep, Woody Woodbury told that story, um, and I was able to put it in the book. But um, yeah, Woody was great. Uh, the other two pilots were just as good for um, a lot of the the details, you know, providing what life was like, what some of the missions were like. One of them had a story about basically Ted Williams aborting a mission because he didn't want to fly it. It's in the book. It sort of colors Ted Williams history with the Marine Corps a little more than most people remember because this pilot seemed to think that Ted Williams didn't want to fly the mission. So he basically made up the fact that his plane wasn't working. Um, That's up for debate and you can read the book to decide how, how you feel about it. Um, and another pilot did not, again, did not like Ted Williams at all, had very, very negative things to say about him personally, um, which is kind of on par with Ted Williams. If you know anything about Ted Williams, there were a lot of people who didn't like Ted Williams. Um, but he too gave me uh, some details on missions. He, he was the one who told me, and I later on un- uncovered this more detail about it, that the Marines at the base uh, in the squadron, particularly the younger and more ex- inexperienced Marines, did not like flying with John Glenn. It wasn't a personality thing. It was that John Glenn was very aggressive and took a lot of risks in the air. And if you were his wingman, it made it very difficult for you if you weren't as good a pilot as John Glenn. And there weren't very wow. many pilots as good as John Glenn. So um, <laughs> I, I liked learning more about how uh, it was kind of a, a nice uh, take some of the sheen off uh, John Glenn, who if in every res- measurable aspect is the perfect Marine, the perfect human being, you know, the ideal American um, never made a mistake in his life, which is not true because no one's that way. But uh, it was nice to hear some um, some criticism of John Glenn. So it, it helped me keep the book from being a love letter to John Glenn. <laughs> nice. Although, no one could blame you for that, though. A yes. love letter to John Glenn. 
I will say that, <laughs> I mean, of all the people I've ever written about or explored um, a, a, a large chunk of their lives, uh, John Glenn lives as close to anyone I've ever encountered. He lives up to the whatever you wanted to say, as he said, clean Marine or goody two shoes or however, you know, whatever term pejorative or not you want to give him. Uh, he was a man of unimpeachable integrity and ethics and morality. Um, and uh, as much as, again, I didn't want to make the book a love letter to John Glenn because I'm a historian and journalist. Um, but if, if you're ever going to do a book that comes off, comes close to that, I think John Glenn is one of the few people you could say that about. He lives up to the mythology, huh? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, well, speaking of your research, one of the things that, I mean, I was captured almost immediately um, was in your prologue, which, you know, it's not too often uh, that you get a prologue that that really, you know, grips you the way it does. But the thing that I found was so fascinating is how you found this person who had a link over, you know, I guess the course of, you know, a decade or so between the two of them. And that was such an, a great entry point into the book. Could you talk a little bit about yeah. that and, and, and where that came about? And, and mm -hmm. I, I think I know the answer of having read it, but if you could just elaborate a little bit on your prologue. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I've done many, many interviews and book signings the last four or five months since the book came out. And very few people ask about this, which makes me think that they skip the prologue because they don't <laughs> think it's part of the book. And you know what? I, I think I was thinking about it while I was writing this. When I was in grade school and I didn't want to read the whole book, I definitely skipped the prologue. So it makes me think that uh, maybe a lot of people skip the prologue. Uh, the backstory is there was a, a Marine, a career Marine named Robert F. Conley, who flew in World War II. He, he did a very distinguished career. Um, about 34, 35 years, I believe, in the Marine Corps, served in uh, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, um, was just a, a remarkable man, became commanding officer at Cherry Point, North Carolina, um, a, a remarkable career, <laughs> had some battles uh, with Chuck Yeager, <laughs> uh, yeah. some tales of Chuck Yeager. Um, I, the, the prologue was actually a lot longer and my editor kind of made me scrap it because it was really long. It was much more of a mini biography on this man Bob Conley, because I was fascinated by him, and his son uh, was actually a great resource for me. Uh, but Bob Conley um, was uh, from Michigan. He ended up at Muskingum College in Ohio, uh, and he was a very good football player. He was the president of his fraternity, and one of the people who played on the football team with him and was in his fraternity was John Glenn, two years younger than him. Um, and they go on about their separate ways after college and both end up in the Marine Corps. Uh, but it turns out Bob Conley rose very fast in the Marine Corps, was a major, um, the early years of the Korean War, and before he got his assignment that he really wanted, flying in combat in Korea, uh, with what was called the, um, flying the Sky Knight for an all-weather uh, unit, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now, uh, but it was a very prominent post that he was the commanding officer for. Um, before he he got his orders to do that, he was in an administrative role at Quantico. And one of his jobs was to choose and reactivate and contact reserve Marines for Korea. And one of the files that came across his desk one day was that of Ted Williams. Uh, and he probably didn't, wasn't a big baseball fan. So he didn't realize that when he saw this file, it was Williams Theodore S. 
um, may have been because the name was Williams and it was a common last name. He said, oh, well, this guy fits all the criteria, served in World War II. He's healthy. He's promoted several times. Now he's a captain. Well, he's going to Korea. And it turns out that was Ted Williams. Um, and the, the prologue actually ends with uh, uh, one of his superiors calling him and chewing him out for reactivating Ted Williams because he set off something of a media firestorm. Uh, but I found that in there was just it was just by happenstance that uh, Bob Conley, I think, retired to go live in Texas after his many years in the Marine Corps. And a local Texas beat sports writer was had he had he had known uh, the, the the future in-laws of Bob Conley. Bob Conley's son was getting married to this woman who was another who was a Texan, and they all had dinner. And they, for some reason, this local reporter in, in Texas was there at the dinner, and he just started talking to him. And because he was a sports writer, he eventually learned that Ted Williams was in was the person he was responsible for reactivating Ted Williams. So he wrote a newspaper article about it in this small Texas newspaper, and I found it. And uh, I thought it was amazing. Uh, it had, didn't mention anything about John Glenn. Uh, but when I started backtracking, I learned that this was the same guy who was in John Glenn's fraternity and his football teammate. Um, and I said, is it possible that these two guys, that this is the same guy, this Bob Conley? And after much, much, much research, I learned it was. And I talked with his son. I finally tracked down Bob Conley's son. Um, and sure enough, he had written something of a, he had helped his dad write something of a, uh, a diary or a memoir later in life. And it turns out this is the same man and no one had ever really explored this before. And I was fascinated by it. And I just thought it was such an amazing intersection and perfect for my book. Like it couldn't have been a more perfect uh, situation for my book. And I thought it was the right way to start off the book. And I'm glad it resonated with you because it seems like you're one of the small people, small group of people who don't skip the prologue. Yeah, no, it was so fascinating. And I was just so, even as I was reading, I'm like, how did you come up with this? I mean, it is the perfect entryway into the book. Uh, and I just love the way it ends with him at you know, two o'clock in the morning, just yeah. like, eh, he's good. He's going to war, hangs up and goes back to sleep. Well, it's fortunate. I don't, I, I, I pride myself as a historian on being very specific about facts, but especially like dialogue. I don't make up dialogue. I'm not like one of those, you know, historical fiction books that like, this is maybe how it could have been. Um, and I wouldn't have had that dialogue if it wasn't for Bob Conley's son who wrote all these things down in something of a journal memoir diary. And that's exactly how it appears in, in this memoir that they wrote um, a couple years before Bob Conley died. But yeah, it had the dialogue and everything. It was perfect for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome. That is that's such a great little nugget of information. Kudos to you for digging until you find Yeah, I was very fortunate, and um, uh, you don't you don't get that lucky. I, I'm working on coming up with the next idea for my book, and I don't know if all the uh, stars will align the same way they did as they did in this one. <laughs> well, speaking of your books, um, one of the things I find really interesting, um, and I'm hoping you could elaborate a little bit on it, was is how writing this book like what it was like because although obviously sports is a major um uh sort of umbrella that this book falls under sports history because of ted williams and you're talking about a quintessential baseball icon um but yet the the vast majority of the book takes place is, is in a military setting mm -hmm. so what is that like sort of i guess 
shifting genres in a way, um, you know, still staying within that same sort of umbrella, but then really delving into uh, the non-sports life of this iconic figure. And then, you know, also having it um, overlapped with an American icon uh, Mm -hmm. at that. What was that process like for you? Well, um, I think the the thing that I was cognizant about was, yes, the first half of the book is certainly a military history book. Um, And I did whatever I could to talk to anyone with the knowledge that I did not have. Like I said earlier, uh, active active Marines who are still serving. I have a very good friend from college who's a a major now um, and over in Japan. Um, He was very good about helping me with sort of the terminology or just getting an understanding of how Marines would have thought or how they do think or the culture the Marine Corps culture, um, which I wanted to show a little bit of in the book. Yeah, that, that's also, a deep chasm, man. So I hope you have a good therapist. <laughs> well, I was, I, I, again, I was very careful not to sh- pretend to, to know, show more than I know. Uh, but I also like, I interviewed Marines, like I said, the three pilots who flew with them were Marines in their nineties who were Marines 70 years ago. Um, so I did whatever I could to get their knowledge and use as much of their language and quote them as much as I could rather than uh, make assumptions. And then uh, I was fortunate to have several experts, uh, a wonderful military aviation historian named uh, Richard Hallion, Dr. Richard P. Hallion, uh, became really my greatest resource for understanding everything about military aviation, um, not just the planes and how they worked and how the armor uh, the the ordinances, what kind of ordinance they used, which was a, an important part to include, but also, um, you know, the the strategies and and what was risks that were involved and what why they attacked targets the way they did. Um, so, to answer your question, I guess I just w- embraced the fact that I knew nothing. Um, mm. I, I embraced the fact that I knew nothing and sought out as much information from experts or people with experience, at least. That as I could, but you know, as much as that was an important part of the book, um, it's really a book about sort of friendship or at yep. least uh, relationships, and particularly relationships that may start under something like serving in a war. Um, so I really went about it to tell the story the story that way that that there were these two men who had nothing in common in a, every possible different avenue. They were on the post, polar ends. Of the of the spectrum, um, whether it was uh, home life, uh, politics, um, you know, ethics, morality, all that stuff, um, and that was what the book. That's what the book's about, and that's how I tried to tell the story from the beginning to the end. And I did whatever I could to fill in the details of their Marine Corps experience, or later on, John Glenn's service in in NASA, or his service in the United States Senate, um, or when he ran for president. Um, so those were all in, I, I don't mean to, to, to generalize or trivialize it, but those were all sort of just the military aspect and the same thing with NASA and those other things were just details that I tried to fill in. And I tried to fill them, the details in as in historically accurate as I possibly could. And to do that, uh, I sought out as many experts as I could and records and archives. I got tens of thousands of pages of Marine Corps command diaries um, and Navy medical records and uh, Navy, you know, uh, records of promotion uh, for both during the, in the Navy and the Marine Corps for both Ted Williams and, and John Glenn and some other people who serve. 
Um, so that was as much as it was a foreign topic to me, the military and the Marine Corps and the Korean War, too, because I had to show a little bit about what the Korean War was about. Um, I, I used that as sort of uh, as as enhancing the story. And it wasn't the main story. So as you were doing all this research, tell me, are there things you learned that were surprising to you? Um, yes, there are many things I learned that were surprising to me. Um, for one, uh, I learned, I didn't really know much about Korea. I mean, I knew what was, what I knew from history class and, uh, things like maybe reading some books here or there, and I didn't watch MASH, so I'm not going to say that. <laughs> uh, but, um, I, I think to me, it's often for considered the forgotten war. And, um, that's something that, uh, John Glenn and Ted Williams were actually very active in helping to establish the Korean War uh, Memorial in Washington, D.C., because even Vietnam got a memorial before Korea did. Um, right. Korea was the last, at one point, was the only major American conflict that didn't have a monument or a memorial in D.C. Um, and I think that is telling to how little we recognize what happened in Korea. Uh, I think it's sandwiched in between World War II, which is so romanticized in every way. Um, in Hollywood and, and people who served, uh, you know, my grandfathers both served in, in World War II. And I, even when I was a kid, I wanted to hear them tell stories about World War II. And then afterwards is Vietnam, which is such a troubled um, period in American history uh, that Korea is often forgotten. So uh, everything about Korea, the urgency, the depth of the, um, of all the, uh, the need for, for the, the missions and ever the advancement, you know, Air Force, Army, Navy, and Marine Corps. Um, that was a, a very early, in the early stages, understanding this chronology of the Korean War, why it was necessary, why so many people were called, why Ted Williams was called to service when he was a Major League Baseball player who hadn't flown a plane in seven years. Um, so th that was probably the first thing that I learned that was very surprising to me, all those details about the Korean War. Um, but Again, I, I mentioned this earlier, uh, for me, learning about John Glenn and just the thought of those pilots who didn't want to fly with him uh, mm -hmm. because he, he took so many risks in the air. His nickname was Old Magnet Ass because he drew mm -hmm. so much uh, enemy um, shells uh, and, and, and enemy fire um, that it was neat to me to think that like uh, there were guys who didn't like, and there were, not only the guys didn't like flying with him, um, which you would think like, oh, if I'd had the chance to fly with John Glenn, that would have been something I really wanted to do. Uh, but they didn't like flying with him. And there were people who didn't like him personally because they, of that. He said in the later years, um, he was desperate to go to Korea because the first two years of the war, he was stationed first in Texas, and then he got sent to Quantico, and he hated his assignment at Quantico. He was on the staff of the Commandant's uh, school. Um, he was taking all these classes. He took classes at the University of Maryland. He was monitoring like all these exercises. He didn't, he barely got to fly. They didn't get him to fly very much uh, because he was the only pilot on the, in the Commandant staff. He really hated his service in Quantico, um, especially because the Korean War was going on. And he, he said, you know, I couldn't believe that I was, had been trained for almost 10 years as a Marine and I wasn't going to fight this war that they needed, they needed people like me. Hell, they had reactivated Ted Williams. He didn't know that, but they'd reactivated Ted Williams. Um, <laughs> he begged to go to Korea. 
Uh, and he eventually, he literally wrote many letters to his superiors, superior officers at Quantico saying, send me to Korea. And eventually they said, stop sending letters, but we'll, we'll send you. So they sent him. And when he got over there, he said years later that he was, his words were, I was very intent on war making. Like, cause I think he was feel, he felt he had to try to make up for the lost time. And I think he felt also that he was one of the most experienced and well-trained Marines in his squadron, which he was. So, you know, it was his duty to go the extra mile. Um, and a lot of guys didn't like that. They thought he was sort of a glory-seeking guy, um, risk-taking or whatever, thrill-seeking, however you want to put it. And there were people who did not like that about him. Um, so I always thought that was interesting, again, because he, he has this reputation of being the clean Marine and uh, Dudley Do-Right, as he put it, in, in the right, right. stuff. Um, that it, it was interesting to see that. Um, that was the thing about Glenn that really, he was very stubborn. That was, this kind of spins off of it. He was very stubborn. He was very stubborn as a pilot. He was very stubborn in that way. His, his superior officers in Korea told him, you can't take so many chances with the, with, in the air because you have inexperienced pilots on your wing. Um, and he was stubborn about that. And he really didn't listen to him. And he got shot up many times from it. Um, and I think he, that gave way to his later life. He was very stubborn as a politician. Um, it's one of the reasons... He struck out in his first two attempts to get to the U.S. Senate. Um, it was one of the reasons he didn't have a tremendously effective legislative career in the Senate in four terms. And it's one of the reasons his presidential campaign went nowhere. Um, so it, that was another thing about John Glenn that really surprised me. Uh, again, I don't want anyone to think I'm beating up on John Glenn, because if you read the book, I think you'll see uh, that uh, he was a man of remarkable character. Um, and a true American hero who belongs on the non-presidential Mount Rushmore of Americans of the 20th century. Oh, yeah, um, I, I would agree. So that, that was something about John Glenn that really surprised me. What Ted Williams surprised me was, um, for one, he was, everybody recalls, people who don't know, and I didn't know this until I started writing the book, that he was like, the, the, the cliche about Ted Williams was he's the only man who was the greatest in history at three different things hitting a baseball, fly fishing, and flying an airplane. And those aren't true. Hitting a baseball, I totally agree. He was a very good fisherman. That's a lot of people who I know. Uh, he's in the Fishing Hall of Fame. People who fished with him told me he was a good fisherman, not the greatest fisherman they ever saw. Uh, but Ted Williams was not a great pilot. I think he was a great pilot in World War II flying propeller planes because of his natural ability and his eyesight and his physical strength. Um, but he went seven years without flying an airplane. And not only that, they switched to jets at the beginning of the Korean War. And he had no experience flying jets. So he wasn't a very good jet pilot. And John Glenn, even years later, although he often said, oh, he was the best wingman I ever had. He sort of let on in his later years that Ted Williams was not a great jet pilot. Um, and so for me, it was another thing that I learned that, that uh, Ted Williams was, was the greatest hitter of all time. But you would not say he was one of the greatest pilots of all time. Interesting. Um, and, and so it, it, shifting gears a little bit, and, and by the way, I want to backtrack again. I should have mentioned this earlier in the podcast for, for listeners who want to read more. First of all, the January issue of Leatherneck, we're publishing an excerpt of your book, which we really appreciate you letting us do that. Um, so, so that'll give you a little taste of it, but you got to go buy the book to get, to get all of this good stuff. Um, and, and how have people, what's been the reception so far? Who, 
how are people reacting to the book and what what group is reading it? Are you finding it's more sports enthusiasts or uh, aviation enthusiasts? Or are you getting a mix of, of all of that? It's definitely been a mix. The baseball community has probably showed the most interest because, you know, Ted Williams is one of those rare names um, and probably not just baseball, but American sports where you can just say the name and it, it perks people, you know, your people's ears perk up. Um, so a lot of people, whether they are Boston Red Sox fans or not, have shown a lot of interest because of the Ted Williams element. Um, but, you know, sometimes I've, I've had people who've been interested in the NASA elements and uh, certainly the military, some, a lot of ex-military people, former Marines and um, anyone who served in any branch of the military is often very interested in the book. Uh, I will say that um, I don't mean to get political uh, in this podcast. It's not my intention. Um, but for those of you who don't know, and you'll certainly read the book, John Glenn was a Democrat. He was a Democratic senator for four terms. Ted Williams was a Republican, a very right-wing, right-leaning uh, conservative Republican, very good friends with Richard Nixon, uh, endorsed many, many Republican candidates, helped George both George Bushes uh, win the New Hampshire primary when they ran for the Republican nomination in 1988 and in 2000 again. Um, and I'm not going to talk politics or anything here, but the fact that John Glenn and Ted Williams were friends, despite very, very different uh, worldviews when it came to politics, worldviews when it came to everything, but especially politics, um, has been something that a lot of people have responded to, uh, especially in today's climate where you know, yeah. Republicans and Democrats often can't be in the same room together. Um, but for me, it's been a very um, useful examination of how these two men who disagreed on so much uh, in every aspect of life were still friends. And when John Glenn, when Ted Williams is dying uh, after, you know, near death, having a 12 hour heart surgery in a hospital in San Diego, um, John Glenn flies across the country to visit him in his hospital room. Uh, and they're not arguing politics. They're talking about their service together in Korea. And, you know, I don't know the specifics of the conversation, but I would imagine they talked about how bad the food was or how dangerous this mission was. And it's all about, you know, it, it comes from a place of their shared experiences and their shared service to their country. Um, so that's one of the things that I think a lot of people have responded to that, it doesn't really, this isn't a Republican book or a Democrat book or whatever you want to characterize it that way. It's a book about two friends um, and all they went through together and how long their friendship lasted for 70, 50 years. Um, and uh, I think it's a good example that maybe some of us could learn from that politics doesn't have to invade every aspect of our lives, such as our friends. What a great, what a great point to make and what a great reminder. Sure. What a great example to use. Um, again, you know, these two iconic figures um, that, yeah, for all intents and purposes, like on paper, should have been, uh, you know, at each other's throats. Um, yeah. But yet it was really, truly the exact opposite. Um, really fascinating. Um, along those same lines, though, of, you know, service uh, and sort of these things that really bind us together a lot of times is through adversity or through, um, you know, these traumatic situations such as war. But um, one of the interesting things that I find uh, in reading and having read your book was there are a few other athletes 
obviously not nearly as prominent as Ted Williams, but who are also um, there in Korea that you had, got, had taken account of or gotten interviews of uh, or feedback from their service. Um, so I found it interesting. So sort of in the public consciousness, the fact that so many, you know, there was an entire movie, you know, League of Their Own, where so many professional athletes had gone off to fight um, in World War II that many of the leagues had to find alternatives or just shut down altogether. Um, and so that was very much in the sort of the American zeitgeist of that time. To bat, piggyback off your comment about Korea being the forgotten war, um, did you find that through your research of these two, that other sports celebrities um, still were were marching to the call of service, or had they kind of lost their appetite post World War II? Um, yeah, what was sort of that sense of of service, especially amongst those who could very easily get out of it? Yeah, I think it's it's very complicated because um, it seems to me I don't want to overgeneralize. But it seems to me every able-bodied young American male between the ages of whatever, 18 and 30, went enlisted in World War II. Pearl Harbor had just been bombed. Um, it was your duty. It was your responsibility. Ted Williams didn't want to go to World War II. He did what he could to get out of it. Um, and then after a while, when he, he got a deferment to help pay, you know, keep his mother financially supported, he got booed so many times. And he says that Quaker Oats rescinded an endorsement deal they had with him because of the bad publicity of him getting out of service that he eventually enlisted in, in uh, the Navy. Um, so I think it's, it's a kind of apples to oranges. Everybody went to world war two. It was your responsibility. I mean, like Rosie, the riveter, right? Uh, everybody was doing their duty, doing their part. Um, and Korea, it, it doesn't seem to me like there was that same sense of urgency for people to enlist. I, I imagine a lot of young people enlisted. I know I, just from my own family history, I know that I, my my grandfather had two brothers. Um, he served, his his young one younger brother served, and then their youngest brother, they went to great lengths to make sure he didn't enlist or serve because someone had to stay with their mother. Um, and then at the end of the war, he, he enlisted and his two older brothers were ready to kill him because they said, you were the one of the last to enlist. So if we go to war again, you're going to be one of the first people called back. Um, and I think that was kind of the environment um, was if you had served a lot in World War II, it was likely you weren't going to serve the next time there was a, 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 a conflict. Um, that wasn't the case for Ted Williams. What happened for Ted Williams was he was reactivated because he stayed in what was called the volunteer reserves at the time, which uh, you could do. You could resign your reserves commission, but a lot of those guys liked staying in the reserves, saying they were still in the Marine. They got promotions. They probably got um, compensatory pay grade raises. Um, so I think that was it was a different kind of environment when Korea happened. And a lot of the guys that I did encounter who were who active major league ball players were also called back. They didn't actually enlist. There's a couple really? guys I mentioned in the book. I know that um, he's not mentioned in the book, but I think the great Dodgers pitcher Don Newcomb served in the army during for one year in Korea. Um, I know Willie Mays served uh, for one year as well, but I don't think he actually saw combat, but there are a couple guys who were reactivated. One of them was Jerry Coleman, who was a great second baseman. Mm -hmm. He was, a, he was, <laughs> it wasn't really a great second baseman. He was just on the great Yankees teams of the fifties. Um, he went to service. He was friends with Ted Williams. He went to service 
um, in a different squadron in the Marine Corps, a guy named Lloyd Merriman, who was a very good prospect in the early, in the late forties and early fifties. He too was recalled, um, served in the same uh, Marine Air Group as, as Ted Williams and John Glenn. Um, there's another uh, baseball player named Bob Kennedy who was reactivated also, but then he had many dependents. So they eventually sent him home before uh, being deployed. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it was necessarily uh, that guys were, you know, being expected to enlist or join the fight because of, I don't know if it was the proximity to World War II or if we people didn't view the Korean War as quote unquote, as important as what happened in World War II. Um, but yeah, the, there were very, very few people in, in that celebrity uh, baseball player uh, mold who went to serve in Korea. And I don't really think any of them did so willingly. Ted Williams did everything he could to get out of service. He contacted lawyers. Um, he had he tried to get a couple of politicians to pull strings, and ultimately it didn't work. Uh, but to his credit, once it was clear that he was going, he gave his all and his you know flew his missions and did so without complaining, as John Glenn said many times. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, one of the things I, I really appreciate about your book um, and especially your prose is how you um, and I think this is your your historian hat, but that, you know, you, you definitely paint these figures as being very real people. Um, and it, it, these aren't love letters. These are just retellings of like the things that happened. And that, that seems to be pretty um, uncommon these days or everything seems to have a platform where we have to, you know, try to preserve the brand sort of thing. Um, but I guess all along the lines of service. So then you like sort of fast forward and I, I don't want to juxtapose your two books, um, uh, Super Bowl Monday. And then this one um, where you see this sort of the dwindling of this, this um, national call to service um, and then, you know, post 9-11, the only really prominent sports celebrity who, you know, air quotes I'm making here, answered the call was Pat Tillman. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really get much in the way of, uh, you know, a, a really a, a large um, sort of uh, call to service. There's plenty of obviously within the sport themselves you know thinking of uh you know yankee stadium just you know a few uh, a week after the attacks and mm-hmm. um <clears throat> these sorts of things but they're still in the sport they haven't left they haven't given up the celebrity to answer the call um what are some of the things that you've noted uh in that or have you have you explored that that aspect of our culture as we've um i don't know sort of evolved or um, celebrities become much more prominent than service or, you know, what are, what are some of the thoughts on, on where sports celebrities sit on this? Uh, I wouldn't be lying if I thought that a lot of, I, I look down on celebrity in a way. Uh, I look down on celebrity overall I look down on sports celebrity in that same group. I think there isn't really not when Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio played, I don't think the celebrity was quite the same as it is today. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thing that I hear not to get on my soapbox, I'll just go mostly with football. I mean, I'm a big football fan. 
um, and I watch a lot of NFL particularly. Um, and you know, the celebrations and uh, the touchdown dances and the sack dances and all that stuff. Uh, I think that's because, um, you know, it's not so much that the guys, the guys are taunting, which in some ways they are, but I think that a lot of those guys view, they've been encouraged that they're entertainers. They're not athletes or sports figures. They're entertainers. And the, so the touchdown celebrations are part of their brand, as you said, you know, their entertainment brand. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't think that quite meshes with the way ballplayers looked at themselves. They certainly thought of themselves as celebrities or stars or superstars or whatever. Um, but I don't think they thought of themselves as entertainers. Um, and I think when you have guys in, in, with that mindset that their job is to entertain the public and be charis you know, big charismatic and controversial, uh, I think it's more, it's in a way it's more about them. It's all about me. It's, it's very selfish kind of, approach uh kind of mm -hmm. selfish kind of attitude um and i wouldn't say every single player is like that but i think there are a lot uh and when you when you have that kind of mindset i don't think self-sacrificing yourself for a, the something like the military is something you're gonna do um and give up your now eight nine figure salary to go serve your country T T pat tillman we I, I would be shocked if we ever saw another pat tillman uh, to do something like that. Um, and as much as Ted Williams, you know, Ted Williams was getting, was the highest paid player in baseball at the time of his recall to the Korean war. Um, and that was one of the excuses he made for not having to serve was it was costing him thousands of thousands of dollars a year. Uh, but he still did it. And I think in today's environment, if that were to happen, which it never would, uh, he wouldn't have gone to, he wouldn't have gone to where then the, whatever athlete you want to pick, Mike Trout or Aaron Rodgers or whoever, if for some one in a trillion chance they were actually called to go serve, maybe 10, 15 years ago would be a better example in Afghanistan, uh, it would never happen. They would find a way out. Uh, it, didn't ha it didn't work that way because in the 50s and the 40s, I think as much as these celebrities were superstars and part of the, belonged to the public, I still think that everybody understood a little bit more about self-sacrifice and, and giving back uh to your country um and i just don't think we see that as much today uh, i think you know and the perfect example of uh selfishness selflessness and you know doing for the greater good is john glenn not just the marine corps and his service in world war ii and korea uh but his test pilot work after the war which is obviously not a uh headline seeking uh thing he did it because uh, it helped make, you know, aviation airplanes better for the next war. Um, and the same thing with the space program sitting on top of two rockets in a tiny little box that had <laughs> repeatedly blown up uh, after liftoff um, was his way of fighting the communists, or as he called them, the godless communists uh, <laughs> in the Soviet Union, but also advancing mankind's exploration in, of the space and the heavens and everything. And then later serving as a United States Senator and also later running for president, John Glenn, I would think is one of the very, this is something that I explore in the book. Uh, I think John, Glenn, John uh, if, if my assumption of John Glenn is true, I think John Glenn is one of the only people in the history of America to run for president, not for glory or headlines or for his ego. I think he did it because he actually felt it was his duty to run for president. 
Um, it was his duty. That was the next logical progression in his mind was Marine Corps fighter pilot, World War II, Korea, Navy test pilot, NASA pioneer, United States senator. Well, next on the progression is president, commander in chief. Nice. Um, and I think I'm sure he would have liked the job for the perks and whatnot. But I also think that he ran for president because he thought it was his responsibility. Um, I don't think we can say that about many people in the last 20 or 30 years who've run for president. Um, so I, I think that 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 generation and maybe the preceding generation, uh, not so much my generation or the one coming up, I think, did have a greater sense of duty. And um, my my son is very interested in politics, in presidential politics, and not really the politics, just who the presidents were. He's 10 years old. Um, he's very interested in Gerald Ford, strangely, right now. Uh, but he he goes around doing. I'll do the John Kennedy impression for him. Uh, and he tries to do it. And he often says, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And um, I think that would be laughed out of circles today. Uh, maybe it was back then, but it's memorable and it, it still has meaning. And John Glenn, and in some respects, Ted Williams, I think were the epitome of that idea. Yeah, no, that definitely, in these days, you know, um, try not to be too cynical, but yeah, that definitely... Is probably more of a punchline in the Beltway than a mantra. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, Adam, thank you so much for being so generous with your time uh, and for letting us talk to you a little bit about this fantastic book. Um, Way to go. Uh, This was so fun uh, to read uh, your anecdotes, the just the depth and breadth of the uh, research that you've done. It really creates a very uh, tangible environment and picture um and you do a wonderful job of like you said sort of bringing to light some of the dynamics of this war that so many of us have sort of just sort of swept under the rug or like you said sort of sandwiched in between these two other conflicts that are um so much more on the forefront of uh american consciousness so thank you so much for your time and for doing this well thank you um i will say you know if your readers do pick up the book if your listeners do pick up the book and they want to go to my website, which is just adamlazarusbooks.com. They can reach out to me and email me. My email is on there. And if they're interested in me signing a book plate for, you know, dedicating or personalizing it for someone, you know, someone who served in the Marine Corps or something like that, um, I'm happy to do so. It makes a great Christmas gift. Um, so if you want to reach out to me through there, adamlazarusbooks.com. Adamlazarusbooks.com. Well, we'll be sure to put those into our show description. Uh, where else can uh, can fans follow you? Do you have uh, any of the socials? Yeah, Adam Lazarus Books on Twitter or um, Instagram, at Lazarus A57, L A Z A R U S A57 at Twitter. I created my Twitter handle like very, very early, so I've never <laughs> changed it. I wish I had done something like Adam Lazarus Books, but I didn't. Uh, but Lazarus A57. Um, they can follow me there, but definitely my website has all those links and links to buy the book and read more about some of the people who've said nice things about the book, other reviews. Um, uh, yeah, that's probably the best place to go find me. Awesome. awesome. Well, we thank you so much again. Thank yeah. you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care now. Thank you. Did you know that you can support the professional development of Marines serving today with a tax deductible contribution? 
Marines benefit from the professional education resources we provide, and they also receive awards from the Marine Corps Association like the Chesty Puller Award given to every honor graduate at Marine Corps Recruit Depots. Make your charitable contribution while there's still time for it to be deducted from your 2023 taxes. Thank you for your support, and Semper Fidelis. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, Retired Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.